Last week, we talked about the gift of simplicity that a body would be for the organization or the neighborhood that they were living in. What would it be like to be a simple person? And the pursuit of simplicity, we said, is not the pursuit of less. It's the pursuit of one. One purpose. One audience. One identity. One ultimate concern. When things get divided, we said, they get complex. And it causes chaos and disruption, not only in us, but in others. So the secret, we said, was to retreat to that center, what Francois Fenelon called the divine abyss, where we find God in the center, and we find clarity in God's voice, and then to bring that presence into the places where we live and work in a quiet, peaceful, unhurried, non-anxious, generous, life-giving spirit. Isn't that easy? So it would follow this week that I would want to talk on something about one. I want to speak about another characteristic or quality in this called integrity. Which means the integration of one. David Callahan has described what he calls a cheating culture. A cheating culture, he says, exists when people get the perception that everybody is cheating and getting away with it, and that if we don't cheat too, we will fall behind. The cheating culture, he says, is the result of two different classes, what he calls the winning class and the anxious class, and they follow two different sets of rules. The winning class is the elite, the powerful and the rich, who live by an entirely different set of rules. And when they break rules, they seem to get away with it. And so all of this is being watched by what he calls the anxious class. And they tell themselves that while there are rules, the rules are unfair. And so a certain amount of rule breaking is necessary just to level the playing field. And so while they admit to breaking rules, they consider it the price one pays for being virtuous. It's the price of, what is it? Fairness or justice. It's how the anxious class keeps up with the winning class. He cites cheating among students. North of 75% have confessed to cheating sometime in the past year. Cheating among teachers. He cites greed and conspiracy among 
major corporations. He cites scandals in government leaders. He cites tax evasion by individual citizens, $345 billion a year in tax evasion, 90% of it from individuals, not from major corporations. He cites employee theft, which is more than $600 billion annually, making it the largest crime in America today. He talks about the way people fudge on their resumes, the way they fabricate letters of recommendation. He says all of this emboldens a cheating culture. The thing that surprises him is that in his research, he was shocked to find that the people who were cheating were otherwise ordinary, even good people. He said most of them would never consider shoplifting. And yet they practice ritually one of these other forms. And all of this comes at a cost. For when a culture has begun to cheat because to play fair is to fall behind, then they will pay the consequence of that cheating. Stephen Covey in his book, Speed of Trust, says we are paying a horrible price to insulate ourselves from the effects of cheating. Every time we sense that someone will be unfair or cut corners, it adds to the speed or it adds to the cost of every transaction. So he said, wherever you go, you may step into a situation where you are paying 30, 40, even 50% more for something, for something that you didn't do. And that's simply to cover the cost of a cheating culture. Now, imagine... In the midst of that culture, another one, a small but creative minority of people that gather wherever they work and live and they practice a different way. In the words of the psalmist, listen to him. This creative minority lead blameless lives. They do what is right. They speak truth from a sincere heart. When gossip makes its rounds, they refuse to slander. When others underperform, they won't speak evil of them. They honor who are faithful and keep their promises even when it hurts. They loan to others. They give to others who cannot pay them back. They refuse to partner in corruption. They defend the innocent and speak up for the poor. In the words of St. Paul, they live and speak truthfully. Listen to Paul's description of it. Put away all falsehood. Marcus Bart translates that. Put away the lie. 
Each of you must speak truth to one another. For you belong to one another. Don't let any unwholesome, corrupt, foul, rotting communication come out of your mouth. But speak only that which is useful for building the other person up according to their needs, according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. Then, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the entire body is joined together and fits perfectly as each member does its part. The word of the Lord. Do you see the contrast? We live amidst the cheating culture. We are called to be people of integrity. And the daily practice of that is that we speak to one another in the language of truth. This raises two questions. One, what is the truth? And two, how do we speak it? Are you with me? When Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Somebody said, Pilate sneered, but we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. It just says, Pilate said, what is truth? And I started to wonder this week, what if he meant it? What if he wanted to know? I mean, what if Pilate wasn't postmodern? What if Pilate was a victim of Roman culture, which tended to take every belief and just merge it under Caesar, the one belief, until Rome was a multi-belief culture. It was an amalgam of different religions and different beliefs like America is today. And so what if Pilate was truly tired of the confusion and he needed Jesus to say something straightforward, something that maybe could have saved Jesus' life. But... Jesus said nothing. Now, there are many answers to Pilate's question, what then is the truth? But for our purposes today, we're going to focus our answers on Paul. And the big takeaway with Paul that is unique to the American experience is that for Paul, the truth belongs to and rises from the Christ-centered community. Let me say it in slow motion. The truth is not a set of facts or propositions. 
that are located somewhere away from the community, out there in the woods, where we all have to go out to it and reckon with it. It's not something extraneous to the body. In Paul's mind, the truth is rooted in the body that is in pursuit of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The truth is not something extraneous to the body. Rather, it lives in the body, is the collective wisdom of the body. It is the way of the righteous who are in pursuit of Christ. That changes a lot of things. So because I like Venn diagrams, I'm going to draw another one. I'm going to put truth or truthfulness in the center of it. And using Paul, a Hebrew and not an American, I'm going to put three words. One is reality. The other is sincerity. And the third is love. You tracking? For Paul, the truth is simply something said that aligns with reality, with the way things are, the way they actually are. And so when one speaks the truth, they say things that are convenient and inconvenient. They say things that bolster their point and things that do not bolster their point. They're responsible for all of the information and all of the wisdom, not just their own. I get this because of reading Walter Eichrott, who says in the Hebrew mind, reality is always merged with nature. And so one learns what is real by looking at the laws that govern nature. These are self-evident things that everyone knows when they look into it. So for Paul, truth begins with what is consistent and what is real. It measures equally to the way things actually are, whether we prefer them or not. This is the message. Sincerity, says Paul, let them speak the truth with sincerity means singleness of heart. It means something that is pure, unmixed, undiluted, undivided. And so when one speaks the truth, they're not only speaking things that are real, they're speaking from a place that is pure, unmixed, undiluted. So if one is the message, this here becomes the motive. And now... It gets interesting. One can say things that align with reality 
and are factually true, but they can say them from an impure motive, from a desire to manipulate or slant or persuade unfairly. Are you tracking? The last, says Paul, is love. And this is unique to Paul. Paul says that whenever truth is spoken, it is spoken for and by the body. It lives in the body. Paul says you must speak truthfully one to another because we belong to one another. We're in the same body. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are all built into him who is the head. That is Christ from him, the whole body. There it is again. Is joined together as each member does it part. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Put away falsehood because we belong to the same body. So for Paul, something is true when the means or the medium or the purpose is to edify the body. So this then becomes the purpose or the means. Now, one way to look at this is to say what happens, what happens if we take any one of these components as Americans are prone to do and we separate it from this whole view of something that is true. If you take only things that are real, but you separate them from the motive and from the body, then you're left with facts. You're left with information. This is an assortment of things that are factually true, but they serve no purpose. And they're disentangled from motive or narrative. Are you still with me? Oh, I think I just lost a third of you. When you take motive and you make it more important you are left with propaganda. Opinions masquerading as fact. You're left with spin. And this, people, is why the culture is suspicious of truth today. They're afraid that this part is bigger than any other part. What is said is always said to suit an agenda that a person already has. And the reason they can't trust it is because they don't trust the heart of the one who is speaking. The motive is impure. And the other person is a victim. They are never elevated. When you elevate only love then you are left with silence. You're left with an omission. It's what you won't say. You're left with perjury, which simply says, I didn't tell a lie. I just didn't tell you everything because I love you so much. I'm not sure you can handle it. Now, if you look at it like this, 
There are two huge trends in our culture right now, and one of those is people who love reality more than they love people. And what they do, says Bonhoeffer in his work on ethics, is they say that people can't handle the truth, that the truth is hard to hear. They, they say truth must have its victims. If you get hurt, it's not my fault because I'm responsible only for the message. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You are responsible for the person too. Are you still there? There are consequences to things you say and you have to own those consequences or you're simply elevating reality over the person and this is not speaking the truth in love, it's just speaking facts. There are others who elevate the person over reality. It's the parent who cannot speak the truth to the child. It's the pastor who cannot speak the truth to a member, the coach who cannot speak what is true to the player because they worry so much it's going to damage the person's feelings. They can never get to reality. You still there? Because you're really quiet. Let me get to the heart of it. The truth, says Paul, is to speak in love things that are real in a way that elevates the other person. It doesn't just tear them down. It is to speak from a heart that is single in nature, serving the interests of the other person. It is not self-expression. It is self-giving. Now I get to the end. How do we speak it? I'm thinking there's three parts to this. Because if it was less, it'd be too simple. One is discern. When, let me break for a second. I had in mind when God called Moses to uh, preach, Moses said, um, I can't speak. And God said, I will teach you how to speak. And I will tell you what to say. The reason we can't hear that passage 
is because most of us in the room right now believe we already know how to speak. And yet, there is an armful of scriptures that indicate when the Holy Spirit possesses a person, they speak differently. David says, his words are on my tongue. Jeremiah said, his word is shut up in my bones like a fire. Jesus said to the disciples, it won't be you who are speaking. It'll be the spirit of my father who is speaking through you. Peter says, when you speak, let it be the very words of God. And he says these things to people who already know how to speak. So it must be that the writers of scripture have some vision for speaking truth in love that exceeds the skill we've all mastered. There must be a way to learn how to speak, even though you know how to speak. Are you still there? Which is why it begins with discernment. We think we know how to do it because we know how to do this. But if you do this before you do this, you did not know how to speak. So to discern implies that your message begins in silence. It's heard in a whisper. It joins what you're hearing from the other and what you're hearing from God while the other speaks. So here... If we go back to our definition of what truth is, what we're trying to discern is what is true. What is pure, unmixed, undiluted, and what builds the other up? I might suggest that learning how to speak would be like learning a new language. It will be clumsy at first and slow and we'll get a lot wrong. But I truly believe if we would use fewer words in the front of the conversation, if we would be in the words of James quick to listen, and slow to speak. Uh, it will come easier over time. It will seem more natural. We'll hear that voice. You're still quiet. Are you okay? Now, when I have discerned what is true, pure, and useful for building the other up, it is time to speak. And here, 
I'm asking myself, what is fair? What adds value to the conversation, to the person, to the body? I'm convicted that if this were the mechanism by which I chose to say anything, I would uh, talk less and, and, and I wouldn't talk as fast because if you're an external processor, when you get into a stream of consciousness, you just start dropping dimes. You start reverting back to a series of pre-learned and rehearsed tropes that you've worked on over the years and you draw for them. They're everywhere and you pull them into conversations. And I just have a feeling that if I really knew how to discern, I would take longer doing it. I would say less at the start of the conversation and less throughout the conversation. But what I said would be laser clear. You still there? Which leads to the last part. Once I say things to people, there are consequences. And because truth resides in the body, I am responsible for those consequences. Some of them anyway. I can't just go dropping lines and then recuse myself from any consequence. So here I'm asking myself, whatever I said, am I current? Our tendency is to tell people what happened. And then when the information has changed, we've resolved the issue to not go back and close the loop, but to leave people believing the first thing we said. Our tendency is to make bold predictions. And then when they turn out not being true, we never say we were wrong. We just stop talking until the next time. And then we'll do it again. But something tells me the pain of having to say, look, I got to come clean on this. I was wrong. I jumped the gun. I might be a little more cautious and discerning next time I spoke. Are you there? You can see why. Um, uh, when I speak to us on uh, speaking, I worry, and I have all week, that we would feel picked on. Why well, I'm using myself as an example. But church, I got to tell you, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit needs and wants to get hold of a Christian's speech.
every transformation that happens in a home, in a workplace, every transformation has to do with language. We cannot change a culture until we change the conversations that we are having when we are together. Until we change the subjects that we talk about and the stories that we tell and the humor that we use, the innuent, all of it, Nothing changes until we get hold of that. Every other change will settle down to whatever that level is. So we have to get hold of our conversations. And it begins with the people of God saying, teach me to speak. When we get this right, and we can, this is not too hard for us. God will use our very words to bring healing instead of wounds. We will bring unity instead of division. We will lift others up instead of holding them down. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to get hold of our conversation so that speaking the truth in love, we all grow up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Let the church say, 